I want to take as my text this morning our second reading the, from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. It's the first letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. And if you have your New Testament handy, I want to invite you to turn there. And I'd like to read it just so it's fresh in our minds. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and beginning at verse 1. In which the Apostle Paul wrote, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that was with me. And so whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. I want to talk on this subject this morning, what we believe first. What we believe first. Indeed, that's what Paul says in our text. He talks about of that, that which is of first importance. And therefore, what we as believers uh, believe first is of most importance. It's the foundation uh, upon which everything else that we believe is built. And without that, those things of first importance, anything else that we might believe, really ceases to have its ultimate meaning. Indeed, notice again, uh, beginning at verse one, I would, uh, he says, I remind you, brothers and sisters, fellow believers, of the gospel I preached to you, and which you received, that is, which you made your own, in which you stand now firmly, you stand in this, this truth, uh, this gospel, and by which you're being saved, uh, by which you're being delivered by God from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. If, and there's a condition, if you hold fast to the word that was preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then verse three, key, he says, and I deliver to you of first importance what also I received. And then Paul mentions two things, two things of first importance, if you like. Indeed, two things of ultimate importance. And the first is, is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He died for us according to the scriptures. And let's break that down because there's several parts to that. The first thing that uh, Paul says is that Christ died. Now that uh, Christ lived, I, I, I would think was pretty hard to, to deny. Uh, Jesus is, if you like, the central figure of the, of the most, of the largest religion in the world. 
uh, even our, our own calendar is based on the life of Jesus. In fact, every time you uh, write the date or type in the date, uh, you are in a sense declaring uh, the existence of Jesus in his life because our calendar is based on his life, Anno Domine, AD 2021. And I'm not sure that there's anyone who would have ever believed that Jesus lived, who, who then wouldn't believe that he died. And so his uh, death is a given. Jesus died, and so Paul said. But but Paul said more than that. He said Paul says that Jesus died for our sins, uh, which is to say that he didn't die for nothing, uh, and he didn't die for his sins, as he says in uh, John seven and I believe or ch chapter eight actually, in, in verse twenty nine. I do always those things which please the Father. Or as the writer to the Hebrews wrote that Jesus was tempted in all ways that as we are and yet without sin. And so he didn't die for his sins and he didn't die for nothing. Uh, but Paul says that um, he did die for our sins. And then he says, and this was all according to the scriptures, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. That is to say that the meaning of Jesus's death wasn't uh, an afterthought. It wasn't something, if you like, that the apostles came up with as they reflected upon Jesus's death and said, you know, maybe this is what the meaning is. Uh, rather, the, the, the meaning wasn't determined after. In fact, the, the meaning of Jesus's death was determined before he died, before the fact. In fact, as we, when we made quite a bit of this uh, uh, last time we were together on um, uh, Good Friday, uh, that uh, that the, the scriptures speak of Jesus. Um, in fact, Jesus himself in John chapter 5, verse 39 said, uh, you search the scriptures, he's speaking to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life, and it is the scriptures that speak of me. Uh, and it is the scriptures, actually, even as Paul says here, that tells us of the meaning of Jesus's death. And what the scriptures say is that Jesus died for our sins. In fact, when we come to Isaiah's prophecy and uh, the 53rd chapter of his prophecy, in particular verses 5 and 6, that's just exactly what we read. The scriptures tell us that Jesus died for our sins. Notice what Isaiah says, beginning at verse 5. He was pierced. I think that's really remarkable, by, by the way. Jesus was crucified. This was written hundred of, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, certainly hundreds of years before he died. And the prophet speaks of piercing. Indeed, Jesus was pierced in his hands, in his feet, in his side, and hundred of years ago, long before the Romans ever entered into Palestine. Isaiah, the prophet, speaks of piercing. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that he didn't deserve, but punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, ironically, with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah says, astray from God. <laughs> we have turned everyone to his own way, making ourselves Lord, a captain of our soul, <laughs> God of our own lives. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned, everyone to his own way. And yet the Lord has laid on him, laid on Jesus, God's servant, the iniquity of us all. And so Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And then the, and then the apostle Paul says that to Christ was buried. Uh, I don't suppose we should be surprised uh, th that he mentions it. Indeed, uh, of course, Jesus was buried. That's what you do with dead people. And, and Jesus really died. What's interesting is that Jesus's death and his burial are also something mentioned in the scriptures. And so when we come to Isaiah 53 and verse 9, this is what we read. And he made his grave with the wicked. And with a rich man in his death. It's very interesting. Now, those who are watching on just suppose that Jesus was dying for his own crimes and for his own sins. And so he was counted amongst the wicked uh, and, and buried as such. And yet uh, the uh, uh, Isaiah says that, and he was with a rich man in his death. What an extraordinary thing to say. So, so specific and particular. Hundreds of years before Jesus was ever, ever, ever died and was buried. But that's just exactly what happened. And so when we read in the Gospels, and here in particular, uh, John chapter 19, beginning at verse 38, this, this is what we read. And after these things, that is to say, after Jesus died, Joseph of Arimathea, and as we read the other Gospels, Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. He absolutely was a rich man and a member of the Sanhedrin, the council in Jerusalem. In fact, those, all of those men were rich. In fact, many of them had positions on the council because they paid for them. But Joseph of Arimathea, it says in John 19, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, he didn't want his immediate friends to know it. He went to Pilate. Extraordinary. This is a man of great standing. He went to the Roman governor. He went to Pilate and asked that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. And so he came and he took away Jesus's body. And then another member of the Sanhedrin, verse 39 of John 19, Nicodemus, also, as John says, who earlier had come to Jesus by night came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. The average Jewish peasant wouldn't have owned anything like that or had the means to pay for it. But both Nicodemus and Joseph were rich men. And so Nicodemus came along and he brought this mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight, John says. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and with the spices, as it was the burial custom of the Jews. And then he says, and now there was in the place where uh, Jesus was crucified, a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever yet been laid. And they laid him there. And so he was with a rich man in his death. And so Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures, uh, Paul says. Uh, but then secondly, he says, and Jesus was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And so these two things, he died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And then secondly, of first importance, uh, he was raised from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures. 
And so let's break that down too. And so Jesus was raised. And Paul says on the third day, indeed, he died on Friday and he was raised on Sunday. It's not the, the counting of 24-hour periods, but just the, the days themselves. In fact, there's examples of this throughout the scriptures that that's how days were often counted, uh, any part of a day. So you have Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So he was raised on the third day. And more significant than the, than the day on which Jesus was raised is in fact the fact that he was raised. Indeed, most of the most powerful members of the Sanhedrin, since we were talking about the Sanhedrin, in particular, the Sadducees, they didn't even believe in resurrection. So the idea that, you know, everybody in the ancient times believed in miracles or believed in the resurrection or ascension or any of these other things is just not true. The Sadducees didn't believe in, in resurrection at all, period. Uh, and yet most uh, other Jews, uh, for the most part, believed in resurrection. Uh, but they believed in uh, what we would call a general res resurrection, that there would be a, a general resurrection of the righteous at the end of time or the end of the age uh, when God would raise them up and reward them and so on uh, for being his people and carrying out his commandments and, and so on. Uh, in, in fact, we get a, a, a sense of this uh, when we read in uh, John chapter 11. A short, just a bit here, uh, a piece of a conversation that Jesus and, and Martha, the Mary, uh, the uh, sister of Lazarus had, uh, and, and she expresses this, this belief that all the Jews had, or most of them, uh, in this general resurrection. They're talking about Lazarus who has died, and, and Lazarus was a close friend of Jesus, and here his sister Mary, they're close friends. And Jesus said to Martha, you know, your, your brother Lazarus will, die, uh, will rise again. He'll rise again. And Martha said to him, yes, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So she didn't have any, she wasn't imagining any resurrection anytime soon, but uh, it, it, perhaps in many, many years yet to come uh, at the end of the age when God would raise the righteous. Uh, and this was, uh, no doubt, one of the reasons why Jesus' disciples uh, just completely didn't understand when Jesus talked about how he was going to Jerusalem and he would suffer uh, and, he, uh, and he would be uh, mistreated and abused and he would uh, be crucified and die. And then he would always say, and then on the third day, rise again. Uh, when he talked about that, they didn't uh, understand it, never mind how many times. Uh, he, he said it and, until he actually did it <laughs> and they experienced it for themselves. But otherwise, th they had no resurrection paradigm that was anything like what he was describing as if he would rise again three days later as an individual. That seemed as many times as he said to them, that seemed to go in one ear and out the other. To them, the resurrection of the righteous at the end of the age, yes, we believe that. But the idea of a resurrection of just one individual sometime before that, no, they, did, that, they, didn't, they couldn't even imagine that. And yet Jesus said that he would rise from the dead, and he did. And, and he did it according to the scriptures, Paul says. Seemingly, one of the... Um, scriptures that the apostles were wont to use uh, when they were talking about, and Jesus rose from the dead and we saw him, uh, and this was in fulfillment of the scriptures, uh, was Psalm 16. In fact, when you 
are reading Paul, or excuse me, Peter, when he's giving his great Pentecost speech, and he talks about the resurrection of Jesus, and, and he talks about how this is a fulfillment of scripture. He brings up uh, Psalm 16, and one of the uh, one of the things that he says is that this was written by King David, and yet it couldn't, at least now, apply to King David because King David is dead, and we have his tomb right here in Jerusalem. And so he must have been speaking something beyond that because it couldn't possibly apply to him, at least not now. In fact, this is what we read, and this is what Paul, what Peter quoted to those to whom he was preaching, uh, that great sermon on that first Pentecost. The Psalm 16 and verses 10 and 11. And the psalmist says this, imagine the words of Jesus speaking to the Father. And you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Sheol is the place of the dead. You will not abandon my soul to the place of the dead or let your Holy One see corruption. He was only in the grave for three days. You make me know the path of life, the path of life. Listen to that again. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make me know the path of life. Or going back to Isaiah 53 again and verse 10 of Isaiah 53. And this is what we read. And when he, the servant of the Lord, whom we know to be Jesus, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, when he dies for our sins, he shall see his offspring. He shall see the effect that his death brings, indeed his resurrection, when, when its power and its redemptive qualities are applied to the people for whom he died. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see it. He doesn't remain dead, he rises. And he shall prolong his days. Again, a reference to resurrection. And the, in, and the will of the Lord, Isaiah says, will prosper in his hand. And so not only does Jesus die, he dies for our sins, and that according to the scriptures. And not, and not only does he rise according to the scriptures, but he's seen. And this is so important. In fact, the four, if you like, four sequential parts of the gospel are that Jesus died, one, that Jesus was buried, and that Jesus rose, and finally that Jesus was seen. And this is so important. Indeed, Jesus was seen. And this seeing of Jesus seems a, a rather a visceral experience, at least uh, according to the testimony of those who experienced Jesus resurrected and experienced him firsthand. In fact, when we, when we read about this in Luke's gospel, in Luke's gospel chapter four and beginning verse, with verse 36, this is what we read. It says, and they were talking about this. This is a reference to the uh, two uh, disciples 
who saw met the resurrected Jesus in Emmaus, indeed in their home, when he broke the bread, you remember, they were, at, he, they were in the home and they were going to have the meal and Jesus took the bread. And when he broke the bread, they realized that it was him and then he disappeared. And, and, and so they ran back, you, you recall, they ran back to Jerusalem and they found the other disciples, uh, Peter and the rest. Uh, and they were saying uh, that we, we saw Jesus at our own table. Uh, when we were having, he broke the bread and there he was. And, and this is what uh, Luke is talking about. And as they were talking about these things, they're in the upper room, uh, hidden away in Jerusalem. And when they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. He just appeared. And he said to them, Shalom, <laughs> peace to you. And, and, and Luke says, but they were startled and frightened. And they thought they were seeing a spirit and who can blame them? Indeed, they weren't expecting to see Jesus. Uh, and he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? And then he said, see my hands and my feet. <laughs> they, were, they were still marked from the places where he was pierced. It's indeed, it's, it, it's so interesting, you know, that Jesus in his resurrection body, he maintains these marks uh, as a testimony forever, everlastingly, that he died and rose again. See my hands and my feet that it is I, and touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, Luke says. And while they were still disbelieving for joy and were marveling, he said to them, by the way, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it before them. It's interesting when John speaks of these things, when he speaks of Jesus, whom he called, you remember the word, the living word. This is what he wrote in the opening of his letter, 1 John chapter 1 and beginning at verse 1. He says, for that which was from the beginning, he's referring to Jesus, the, the, the logos, the word, in the beginning was the word. That which was from the beginning and which we have heard <laughs> with our ears and seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest where we could see it and we have seen it and we testify, we bear witness to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifested to us. What we have seen and what we have heard and what we have touched. And so Paul notes in verses five and seven of our text of people who saw Jesus risen but weren't expecting to see him. And, and, and that includes uh, Cephas or Kepha in the Aramaic, that's Peter. Uh, he wasn't expecting to see Jesus. And the 12, which is just uh, uh, a, a, a common 
uh, name for all of the disciples. And then Paul mentions, and 500 brothers or 500 believers at one time. And then he sa- he adds in the text, who uh, many of whom are still, are still alive, although some have fallen asleep or some have died. Uh, Paul wrote uh, 1 Corinthians in, in the mid-first century. Uh, and this, he wrote it approximately 20 years after uh, Jesus's resurrection. And so he's saying that some of the people 20 years ago, when they saw him at this particular event where there were so many disciples, they're still around. I mean, you could ask them if you liked. And then uh, he appeared to James, uh, which is uh, Jesus's brother. Uh, in fact, not James, the son, uh, uh, the son of Zebedee, but 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 James, Jesus's brother. In fact, uh, in Matthew what, chapter 13, I think at the very end of the chapter there, uh, all of the brothers are listed. Jesus's brothers and the oldest is James or, or Jacob uh, in the in the Hebrew uh, and uh, you you will remember that his, his family when Jesus was doing his ministry and casting out demons and walking all about and he was he was uh, homeless and going from place to place and preaching the gospel and telling people to repent the kingdom of God is at hand they thought Jesus was was crazy they thought he was insane sometimes going and trying to take him home and, and uh, hide him away so, the, so as to stop all the embarrassment. <laughs> they didn't believe in him. They thought that he was insane. But when he rose from the dead, well, they and saw him risen. They took a different attitude. And James himself, Jesus's older brother, after him, Jesus was the oldest. He became a key leader in the church. And then Paul mentions uh, a person who probably would have preferred not to have uh, seen the risen Christ, (laughs) and that was himself. Uh, He didn't want to. I mean, Paul didn't believe, certainly when Jesus was uh, having his ministry and when Jesus was crucified. And then subsequently, when the church, the spirit of God filled the apostles and the church began to expand in ways that had never expanded during Jesus's own earthly ministry. Uh, Paul uh, was a persecutor of the church. He wasn't a believer. He didn't want to be a believer. He wanted to destroy the church. In fact, he was on his way to Damascus to do that, to arrest Jewish Christian people and, and remove them from the synagogues in Damascus and bring them back to Jerusalem to indicting them and put the, putting them on trial. It was under those circumstances within that context that the risen Christ met Paul on the road to Damascus. <laughs> and so Paul says, in, beginning at verse 8, he says, Last of all, he said, as, of, as of one untimely born. He's referring to the fact that he was sort of a latecomer to all of this. He wasn't an original disciple with Jesus. He wasn't one of the twelve. And yet Jesus sought him out. And it is an extraordinary thing when one thinks about all that Jesus did through Paul and how the gospel expanded into Asia Minor and then into Europe and all the things that uh, that, uh, Paul wrote. What, out of the 27 books that make up the New Testament, 13 of them were written by the Apostle Paul. But he says in in verse 8, last of all, as one uh, untimely born, the risen Christ, he, he appeared to me. And he says, but I, I'm, I'm the least of the, of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. <laughs> it's interesting. One of, the, one of the last things that Paul wrote, First Timothy, the letter to Timothy, and he still spoke of this in the, first, in, the, in the present tense. 
He said, uh, this is a worthy statement of all people to be, to be accepted, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the chief, <laughs> the chiefest of sinners. And so Jesus appeared to Paul. What's interesting is we continue to read through the 1 Corinthians 15. One of the things that Paul points out is that the gospel and this message, this, these first things, these things of first importance, what we believe first is not just about Jesus and his rising. Indeed, the message of the gospel is also about the fact that all those who are in Christ, that is to say, all those who are spiritually united with Christ through faith in him will also rise. In fact, uh, as we read on in this 15th chapter and come to the 50th verse, it's a long chapter, 58 verses total. But we come to the fifth, 50th verse. This is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, I tell you, brothers, that is fellow believers, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood, you know, like what we have, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Our bodies are perishable. The kingdom of God is an imperishable thing. We need a new circumstance is what he's saying. In verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. He's saying we, that is to say, not all of us will die. But we all shall be changed. In fact, we must all be changed if we're to inherit the kingdom of God. And so he says, behold, I tell you a mystery. Not all of us will sleep, but, but we all will be changed. And that in, the, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, he's referring to the coming of Christ, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable with like resurrection bodies, like Jesus' own resurrection body. And we who remain will be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the the when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and when our mortality puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written: Death is swallowed up in victory. Indeed, O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? And Paul says, and thanks be to God who gives us the victory to our Lord Jesus Christ. And the application of all of this is found in the very last verse of this 15th chapter. Verse 58, in which we read, and therefore, that's a great applicational word. And therefore, my beloved brothers, my fellow believers in Christ. He says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Indeed, how could it be in vain? Because we shall rise too, and we shall see him face to face. And if we have been abounding in the Lord and, and our faith is not in vain, we shall hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And so it's not just about Jesus, but it's about us too, to receive this truth and to make it our own, to stand in it and to hold it fast, knowing that a life 
that is informed and shaped by truth is not a life lived in vain. Amen. What we believe first. Let us pray. It's exciting, Lord. <laughs> it's exciting. How many, uh, how many people, Lord, uh, are constantly putting death out of their mind because it's, what do I do with it? What do I do with it? And all the things we do to try to stay alive because, you know, we say to one another, you know, you only got one life. But that's not what the gospel says. <laughs> The gospel says, and when you lose this life, if you're in Christ, you shall have new life. And that life shall, is everlasting life, life that never ends. Life like he experienced after the crucifixion, after the burial, he rose again on the third day. And so you shall rise too. When he comes in the shout of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And when he comes, the dead in Christ shall rise first. And so we shall ever be with the Lord and so it's exciting and it takes that whole that whole feeling of fear and anxiety about death just takes it away so that we can live for you Lord fully with all 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 that we are in this life and when death comes no it's just a time of transition until such time as the Lord shall come again and call us by name and raise us even as he was raised that we might live with him forever. I pray, Lord, that, uh, that, that, that everyone listening to this even now might be so encouraged by these things that they might fear death no more. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.